This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Futurati podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Peter Langland Hassan. Dr. Langland Hassan is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Cincinnati and working groups lead for the Institute for Research in Sensing at the University of Cincinnati. He is author of the book Explaining Imagination, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press and co-editor of the anthology Inner Speech, New Voices, also published with Oxford. His numerous published articles span theoretical philosophy and experimental psychology, addressing topics such as consciousness, auditory verbal hallucinations, the relationship between language and abstract thought, pretense, imagination, hypothetical reasoning, and creativity. If you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast so that we can keep bringing you this great content. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Why don't we hear a little bit about your background and your interests and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today? Okay, well, I'm a, a philosophy professor at the uh, University of Cincinnati, um, and uh, I work in the philosophy of mind and and also in experimental psychology. Um, so, you know, I've been working on those topics for a long time. In fact, my my dissertation coming out of grad school was was on imagination. Um, I was initially drawn to that topic. Um, because I was interested in the mind-body problem in philosophy, sort of the, the question of consciousness and and its um, relation to physical things in the world, and why it might seem that consciousness couldn't be a physical thing, and I was right. you know taken with that puzzle, and that sort of led me into to philosophy. Um, and then I became convinced that somehow the appearance of that puzzle was due to the way that we think about minds, and specifically the way we imagine minds. And so I got to thinking hard about what imagination is, how it works, how it represents things, how it represents both mental things and things in the world. And that led me onto this further path about just, okay, getting down to analyzing the nature of imagination itself. Um, and that sort of led up to finally last year, I published a book on imagination called Explaining Imagination, where I give my grand theory, uh, what I kind of reductive theory. I can give more details on that later if we want of imagination. And along the way, I've worked on other things, um, inner speech, so the, the voice in the head uh, when we talk to ourselves silently. Um, what is, you know, why do we do that? Why do we go in for so much inner speech? For those of us that do, what would, uh, if we were to lose that ability to generate speech in the head, 
Uh, how would that affect our other kinds of cognitive abilities? Uh, are there any unobvious ways? Obviously, we'd have difficulty generating and planning what we want to say in the head, but um, would we have more general reasoning difficulties or not? Um, and that gets to the general question about the relationship between language and thinking. And so I've investigated those questions, both sort of in philosophical work and in some experimental work. Fantastic. I actually have questions related to every single one of those things. So that's uh, an, an excellent. Okay. Opener. Okay, great. <laughs> um, re real quick. Uh, I've been doing <clears throat> quite a bit of work on the future of work and this idea of what things can be automated out of existence and what things can't. Mm. Do, do you have any general uh, rules of thumb as to what things can AI do that uh, what things can people do that AI will never be able to do? I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's a question that I find really interesting and thought about. I, I don't have any line in the sand about that. Uh, I continue to be amazed about what AI can do. Um, and we can talk about this. One of the things I talk about in, in the book is creativity um, and certain kinds of creativity that seem to me to present some of the hardest cases for AI. Um, writing a truly great song right, or, or a great novel. Um, those seem like difficult things to do, um, but I try to approach those in a way. Those, and, I, and I can talk about why and whether we're right to think that they're difficult. I mean, we could talk about that. Um, but um, I think it's interesting to think about well, you know, those with those kinds of examples in mind, what are what would be the real barriers for that? And do we see the seeds of an ability to do that in current uh, AI? Um, I actually think we do. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's something to kind of get deeper into right now or uh, this topic of creativity in, in AI. That's where I'm inclined to go when you ask that question about limits. Yeah. I, well, I think in terms of our imagination and the ability to come up with something that's a totally unique and new product for the marketplace, right. something that didn't exist uh, before you came up with the idea, that seems like that would be an impossibility for AI to come up with something like that. Um, yeah. Well, let me uh, let me give you my longer answer to this then, if that's all right. Sure. Um, so let's let's think about certain cases of creativity. Um, start with cases where it seems like an AI perhaps could do something uh, creative. Um, think about a case. So it's a common task for kids to do in sort of science class in elementary school. You're given a set of materials. You say, okay, out of this tape and these pieces of paper and paper clips, I want you to make the tallest freestanding structure that you can. Okay. And then the classmates break into groups and they see who can, uh, who can win this challenge. Now, there's some creativity involved here, right? They've, hopefully they've never, you know, seen other people do this particular challenge. They have to think about new ways to combine these materials. Um, okay. It's, I think, you know, it'd be strange to deny that that's a creative Thing to do. But on the other hand, um, we can see it as a complex bit of reasoning from knowing the properties of the various things, calculating ways they could be combined, right? And finally arriving at uh, a suitable sort of solution. And we could even imagine writing 
an algorithm for, you know, given these materials, right, uh, arrive that would take us to a sort of a, a good way of arranging them for a tall uh, structure. I don't think people would necessarily question the ability of AI to do that. And the interesting thing there, I think, is that as soon as we feel like we could describe how to do something roughly in an algorithmic way, we decide, well, it's not really creativity if you do that. <laughs> right. Right. As, uh, the kids, okay, before we thought about it a lot, we said, oh, that was a very creative solution to this problem. But once we break it down and we, we formalize the algorithm, okay, well, if the machine does it, they follow the algorithm, that's not creative. Now, I, I think the machine deserves to be called creative in that case. However, it doesn't get to the real challenge because we might feel like, fair enough, that's not the kind of groundbreaking discovery that we really had in mind that would be beyond the reach of AI. Uh, so what then, okay, then let's get a little more precise about what we mean. What is this kind of creativity? And uh, a term has been called, uh, in the literature on creativity is sometimes this term transformative creativity is, is used to mark uh, a kind of creativity that, that introduces some kind of truly new idea into the world um, that can't just be seen as reshuffling, reorganizing past ideas. I think Margaret Bowden is a psychologist who popularized that term. Um, so when I think of transformative creativity, you can think of all kinds of examples, but I really liked these examples and partly just maybe my, my background is as a musician before philosophy, but I, I like these examples of songwriters talking about their songwriting. And so in, in the chapter on creativity in, uh, in my book, Explaining Imagination, I, I give a number of these long quotes from people like Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and uh, uh, Neil Young, Leonard Cohen, people that you know, I think of as really great songwriters. And there's a theme in them all where they talk when they, you know, so, and, and I took a bunch of these from a great collection of interviews on songwriting called Songwriters on Songwriting um, by Paul Zollo. It's a great, if you're just interested in songwriting at all, these are fantastic long interviews where they really get into the craft and people in the songwriters are very open about their process and very reflective about it. But one thing you find again and again, when they ask, okay, you know, where do the good songs come from? You know, where, what's your method here? They're very insistently, there is no method. They all like to appeal to, it's the subconscious. These things come, you can't force it. Uh, it's you know, these things, you just have to put yourself in a position of kind of receptivity to it. And then somehow, you know, when the ideas come, you let them come. But if you try to sort of control it too much, uh, you lose what the really good, the really inspiring, interesting ideas uh, and pretty often they're talking about lyrical ideas. So, okay. So there are a few things I sort of pulled out of that is that here you have the same idea for themselves that they feel like part of what is really valuable here and the, the best songs they come up with and the best ideas is that they can't articulate the process by which they came up to it. Um, there's no set of rules they could tell you that say, you know, there's no algorithm they could write to say, just follow this and you too will write, you know, tangled up in blue or whatever, right? right? There's no, nothing like that. Um, now, I, having thought about that, and okay, fair enough, it just seems difficult, it seems somewhat mysterious, but it reminded me a lot, um, and I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this, um, 
of contemporary deep neural networks in the sense that they can be trained to detect very sophisticated patterns or things, as we all know, like whether it's a face or a, a type of object or settings involving soccer or whatever it is, um, they can be trained to do these very sophisticated discriminations. But the nature of these networks and the nature of machine learning is such that no one ever programs into them a specific rule about what to look for. Right. Um, you know, they're just fine tuned over many, many iterations of training and adjustments of the weights uh, among the connections in the network. Um, and, and so, you know, if the network itself could talk and you ask, well, how are you doing this? How are you discriminating these things? Right. I, the network wouldn't be able to tell you the rule, even though there is in some, at some level, there's the network, right? There's it's mechanic, you know, it's the way it can be programmed, but at the same time, it's not anything like the kind of simple, you know, rule following algorithm that we might've um, thought of. It, um, and so, you know, and, and then particularly when you turn to these um, generative um, uh, algorithms, what the uh, generative, uh, Adversarial network. Uh, adversarial networks, right. yeah. Um, where, you know, now they're not just discriminating things, but they're using that ability to discriminate things, essentially oversimplifying a bit, in reverse to sort of produce likely versions of the kinds of things they've been trained to discriminate. Okay, now we have something more like creating things and not just discriminating things. But they're using this very finely tuned ability to discriminate or to to, to to generate new versions of things, whether it's as you know it's been popularly reported, you know, celebrity-like looking people or a likely Van Gogh type of painting or right. whatever. Um, but again, there's no sort of specific, easily, there's no rule that they could that could be written down in English. Let's say that it could say like what it's doing or how it's doing it. Right. If it were, if you were to ask the, the, the network to say, how the heck do you do this? There, it's nothing that could be expressed in, in English or in any language like that. So to me, that seems again, and you know, to draw an analogy back to the songwriters, well, the songwriters have all been, you know, trained themselves on listening to all the great music they, you know, that they've enjoyed over the years. Right. And the people who are really they find to be doing things well. Right. And they've they've kind of trained their own network for how things, you know, discriminating what's good from what's bad in music. And in a sense, you can see them as running that backwards right. <laughs> when they try to produce something. Um, but all, again, there's no particular um, rule that could be stated in English about how they're going to do that. But they need to somehow rely on all that training to use it sort of in the opposite direction to produce something new. Um, so, you know, I try to draw out. So, you know, then I'm, I'm thinking, well, if that sort of, if that kind of creativity, the almost inexpressible kind of creativity is possible in AI, mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm not um, optimistic about setting any particular limits on what AI <laughs> could do, <laughs> even if we're not there yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of follows along closely with what Carl Polanyi was saying back in the 1950s, that um, the, the, the limits are that we know more than we can tell, and, um, and that uh, we can't, um, uh, how, 
how does something learn something that we don't even know how to express? And so that that follows real closely with what he was saying there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's there's yeah. kind of a, a rich vein in philosophy dealing with this problem of embodied cognition and tacit knowledge and how it is that you arrive at truths that are inarticulable, the kinds of things that you can't really express very well. And we all know this all the time, right? If, if you try to provide somebody with an algorithm for riding a bicycle, it winds up being pretty hard to do. A lot mm-hmm. of it, you just have to kind of interact with the system, get feedback from it. And then some sub process, some sub module in your mind is able to kind of parse that and feel it out. Then you learn how to balance on the bike. It's an easy thing to say, but so much mm-hmm. of the rich richness of that experience isn't captured in the actual language. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Thinking like riding a bike is... It's something you learn how to do, but um, for some reason, for thinking, we often think, well, if I arrived at this conclusion, I ought to, I owe you an explanation of how I got to it. Unlike riding a bike, you know, um, <laughs> maybe part of being rational is what you're supposed to sort of tell you the steps at which, by which you arrived at your, your, your conclusion, right? And, um, and so we develop an ability to try to do that, but I feel like a lot of that is sort of post hoc interpretation. Like, well, I arrived at this <laughs> conclusion. I believe this. There must be some, you know, now I know this practice that we have of sort of spelling out reasons why I believe this, that others will accept as sort of making this a good thing to believe. But um, the thinking itself, you know, if we sort of crack into how thinking is really happening. I, I do tend to agree that it, it's not happening in this kind of code that's going to map cleanly onto uh, the way we sort of describe our thinking right. in language. Yeah, doing and describing are very different things. And I, I really like the the distinction you make between transformative creativity and I guess more quotidian creativity. I don't know what the technical term is, but where you're essentially just learning statistical regularities, you're, you're mapping a Mm -hmm. pattern and extrapolating or adding some noise or interpreting it in a different way. And Mm -hmm. it's also, you know, pertinent that that's essentially just what a deep neural network or a generative adversarial network does. It just learns these things. And and that gets you a lot, right? You really can get pretty far with that. Arguably, I I would say maybe further than a human could get. Like I, I just, I don't know that, you know, e- even the best, what Van Gogh in- impersonators w- would be able to do a whole lot better than a really good generative adversarial neural network at, at mm-hmm. creating a plausible Van Gogh painting. And yet human beings somehow or another are able to transcend that and to go far beyond just combining the elements that are around and seeing entirely new ways of configuring things or just reformulating the problem such that it's not a problem anymore. And that's the kind of thing that an algorithm can't do but, or, or none of, none of the current algorithms can do, but I, I have to think that on some level, it's, it's still the same basic process, right? Like the, I, I don't believe there's any magic in human cognition. I don't think there's ever a point where you, I, I, I don't know, use quantum superposition or something to arrive at a, at a completely novel formulation. I think on some level, it just has to be something very similar to what's happening in a neural network. Maybe it's more complicated, but I mean, neurons are just, they either fire or they don't. It's got the same kind of binary property. I mean, there's a lot more happening in an actual neuron than an artificial one. Of course, we all know that, but, but I, I still, I think there's, there's sort of a, a grand mystery there in, in how it is that you, you do something that looks a lot like what a neural network does. And yet out of that comes everything human beings have made. So somewhere in there, there's, there's, we're missing something in our neural networks. Well, let me ask you about that. Um, so, you know, as you, you kind of mentioned this example, you know, they give these neural networks lots and lots of Van Gogh paintings, and then it can sort of create a great version of a Van Gogh, but you feel like it's not doing something new. Um, what if we're training, you know, 
you know, what if we, this is kind of like, imagine a painter who only ever saw Van Gogh paintings. Right. And then we ask him to paint a painting. It's yeah. not going to be do a whole lot, you know, be a whole, you might not be much more, you know, sort of free thinking than, than the algorithm. And what I, one thing I sort of wondered about in the book was like, well, what if we give uh, an algorithm trained on many different great painters uh, or, you know, a particular selection, right? Uh, just like any artist or person has a, their own sort of particular influences or likes. So we have, you know, we give them that sort of diverse group that they're trained on and then use that training to generate something, a likely member of it, but that is in some sense combining all these influences could that with certain combinations take us to something that seems genuinely new or, you know? Yeah, that that's a fascinating question. I actually don't know, and I'm not familiar with any work in the literature. So I'm a machine learning engineer. And so I, I work with algorithms like this and I've read a lot of the literature. All of the experiments that I'm aware of tend to be thematic. So they, the, the example that comes to mind is Emily Copeland. So this was, I, I always forget the the guy's name. I remember the program's name. It's called Emily Copeland, but I don't remember the the guy's name that actually put it together. And it's a music training program and you can train it on, you know, Mozart or you can train it on Bach or you can train it on any of these people. And it can generate really plausible sounding uh, music in their styles. I, I don't know that it's possible just to give it everything and then say, okay, come up with something interesting. That's an empirical question. I mean, somebody has mm-hmm. is bound to have tried that. I'm inclined mm-hmm. to think that if anything worthwhile had come of it, I would have read about it. But I mean, there's you know thousands and thousands of papers, so I could be totally wrong about that. But my yeah. my immediate response is, given the algorithms we have today, they're they're learning a function, an, an enormously complicated function. Uh, they're finding statistical regularities and finding some way of representing that with their internal structure, such that they can generate new examples from that. But I don't know that they're flexible enough to just, you know, take all the Van Gogh you have and all the whoever else you have and then produce something interesting out of that. It's possible, though, that you could do that and produce something that a human would find compelling. So the algorithm mm-hmm. can't it can't look at this and say this is good new art, but we might be able mm-hmm. to say, okay, that's Picasso and Van Gogh. Ninety nine percent of this is weird garbage, but this one right here is actually pretty cool. You could mm-hmm. give this to a human, a talented art student, and they might be able to go from there and take it into an interesting place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, you just it 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 does make sense that you know even even the great artists, right? They don't pop out of nowhere, right? Everyone talk, well, they're influenced, you know. Right, exactly. Bob Dylan, obviously influenced by Woody Guthrie, and, you know, <laughs> others and so on, and any and and painters on down the line. Um, so it, you know, and that's an often how people are interpreted in terms of their influences, in terms of a combination of things that somehow adds up to something new. So I would definitely leave the door open to that, you know, AI modeling that sort of combination of, of training on multiple things to come up with something new. Um, but yeah, and without any judgment about whether it, what it was coming up with was good. Um, but yeah, I, I get it that that is a, still, it does sound like a different kind of task. You, you know, what um, would be an interesting way to approach that would know. be to train an ensemble of neural networks on different styles and then have something more like a reinforcement learning agent that that works with each of them and manages them and then learns how to take the outputs and combine it in interesting ways. 
yeah. might be able to do okay, something. Okay, so like add that. a layer of yeah, yeah, of supervision, yeah, which is basically their people, your friends saying, actually that song sucked, man. You know, try again. Right, and then it learns uh, how to combine the output. So, that, so each of the strands, each of the the sub modules is trained on different styles, and that's all it can do. But its output can be combined in, in novel and interesting ways. <laughs> and then it, the the RL agent would have to learn from a human what counts as a good song. Uh, that's plausible. That's probably a PhD project or several of them, but that might work. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first AI generated uh, music, uh, they fed in all the Beatles music into this uh, machine and, and it, it spit out a new song that they titled daddy's car. And <laughs> that was, that was the first, that was the first uh, AI yeah. Huh. Now that raises all kinds of questions naturally because um, do the Beatles get a cut of that? I mean, do they do they get some royalties off of this thing that would they heavily influenced? And mm-hmm. so the intellectual property questions um, keep coming up to me as, hmm. as we deal with things like this. But yeah. if if you were to feed in, you know, Michelangelo and Da Vinci and and Picasso into uh, this this algorithm and and spit out paintings and in general i would think that you could expect at least uh, maybe one percent of them to be decent um mm-hmm. and uh maybe maybe you could tweak it a little bit and get them up so maybe a two percent are okay um <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it is, is that at what point is it a higher percentage of of hits than america than a, a human would have um and so it be, becomes kind of a complicated question. And we, I, what I'm trying to get at, though, is what differentiates um, humans from anything a machine can do? And then how do we capitalize on that? How do we, how do we establish that as the safe ground for future jobs for people? The threat, I guess, would be that many people would be out of jobs, but some people would still be making money somehow with these other... Uh, other um, technologies going because you know we unless we you're imagining a future where we simply ride ourselves out of uh, existence um but by by sort of well we're but well i guess i'm sort of you know wondering what that could even could even be if you know humans are here trying to you know accomplish their goals in the world um <laughs> Maybe I should, uh, you know, are, is there a worry that, um, you know, a certain jobs certainly will get replaced. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, the standard thing to say, well, but then, you know, those will just create new jobs uh, that we hadn't yet imagined. And so, yeah, so on. To, to help, go on. To so help Thomas, where do you see that? Yeah. Where do you see the. Yeah, to help uh, you out a little bit on that, we're, we're actually automating tasks out of existence. We're not automating entire jobs out of existence. And and it's not us versus them. It's actually us with them. So somebody generally will own the AI. They'll own the robots. And so somebody is leveraging these additional tools to, to give them additional capabilities, to give them... Um, the ability to do something they couldn't before. And so, um, but it, it still leaves that question wide open as to um, if I want to get trained for a new career, where, where is the safe ground? Um, something that I know will never, 
uh, will never get automated out of existence in the future. But I'm I'm not sure that that that's knowable, and uh, and I'm not sure that um, that yeah thinking we know an answer actually gives us a decent answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, I had actually this conversation with my 14 year old son just today about whether, you know, uh, I think we were listening to something about AI came up and, you know, we're having our, our bathroom renovated right now by some, you know, it's an old house and all kinds of weird things are discovered. And, you know, yeah. there's a whole team of different people coming in and they've never seen it like this before. Now right. they got to do this and they, they have to be have a lot of physical agility and a lot of know-how and, and figure out what to do in a slightly different situations. I was suggesting that this would be a really, really difficult to automate with AI. I mean, not just like the problem solving, but, you know, a huge difficulty is, I think, is the robotics of it, you know, getting the kind of flexibility movements and, and, and uh, coordinating sort of the thinking part with the acting part. Uh, to pull off something like renovating a bathroom actually seems quite difficult to me. Um, but my right. son was not at all impressed. He said, no, no, robots, they can turn this way and they can do that. It's simple, <laughs> you know, they, this is, he thinks they have no future. Uh, so, you know, I think I paused on all this because I really have no idea. Um, it would be strange if philosophy professors were, you know, uh, became AI in the future. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not, not, not the type to put that kind of limit on things you know i just don't know yeah what what will be around and yeah i wouldn't want to be around 20 years after having given advice to someone to say well go into this career i promise this won't be you know handled by ai and, and then sure enough it is <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, um, one of one of the uh, the gauges is as long as we have problems, we will always have jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Not seeing any end to the stream of There's, problems. Yeah, so, yeah, that's yeah. probably well put. Yeah, that's an interesting gauge. Yeah. Well, for for what it's worth, I, I tend to come down more on your side, Peter, in in that the robotics problem has proven quite a bit more difficult than people thought it would. And I actually tend to think that the jobs that will be automated last um, will be the ones that involve, you know, building decks and solving physical problems in the real world that are unique and, mm -hmm. you know, one-off and that have never been seen before, even if they bear a pretty strong resemblance to some archetype, something you would read in a book or see in a spec. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. th those little details really do matter a lot. And the, the physicality of it is mm -hmm. one of the greater challenges. So it was interesting yeah. that, you know, building algorithms that can solve calculus problems or prove theorems, doing things that are sort of at the pinnacle of human knowledge came first. Mm -hmm. It was building mm -hmm. something that could walk up the stairs and ring a bell and walk back down and not fall and, and just be ridiculous. That took much longer. And I think part yeah. of the reason for that is just that human introspection is shallow. 
And so the original AI researchers believed that it would not take very long to build a human level artificial intelligence because many of the things that we take for granted in our mental life just sort of appear phenomenologically. I open my eyes and I just see the world, right? But constructing that representation, that visual representation, to say nothing of all the other sensory modalities is actually very complicated. And getting mm -hmm. sensors to do it and actuators to do it, an algorithm that can, that can mm -hmm. integrate all of that information and respond intelligently is really difficult. It's actually not so hard to prove the theorems. I mean, that's, that is itself a very hard problem, but it wound up being easier to automate those things than it was to, again, to, to automate breakdancing or something like that. So I think yeah. that the blue collar workers are probably safer than people like me who, who write code for a mm -hmm. living. Yeah, that was my, <laughs> that was my guess. I mean, you know, you, you see the, like the amazing kind of text generation done by OpenAI's GPT-3 oh, yeah. Yeah, and amazing. things like, okay, this thing can write a pretty convincing, if, albeit a little silly and shallow version of like a New Yorker article, right. right? It could master that, you know. Okay, so those writers who, you know, have all this, you know, education, or for that matter, let's say a philosophical article, article uh, they can definitely write, you know, C papers in college right now. Have, have, there's no question about it. But, um, you know, okay, because you're, do, do, you know, you're staying in the world of text, you know, you're starting with text, you're starting with words and working with regularities with words, that's really narrowing your sort of realm of what you have to deal with. You, right. you know, you think about just regularities of words, as opposed to sort of coming in and uh, ripping out the old bathroom and figuring out what the heck's going on and coordinating all this activity um, in a new setting, which I agree seems to be a task of a different, right. different order. Yep. Yeah, one thing I always mention is that the cars that we drive today have actually been in development for 120 years. So it's taken that long to get to things that are this good. And so if you think about all of the devices that you have in your life, it's taken many, many years to get to this level of sophistication in those devices. So if you think about uh, AI might be moving at a faster pace because it's all digital, but it's still going to take many, many years to, to get refined to the point where it's um, able to handle the, the level of details that humans can at attend to. Mm -hmm. Thomas, do you have views on the particular limits uh, since you raised this question? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I have, I have some, uh, some thoughts on, you know, all, all of, all of our equipment wears out. I mean, how many things in your life do you have that's over 10 years old? How many, how many devices do you have that are over 10 years old? Virtually none. I mean, you might have a car that's over 10 years old, maybe a refrigerator and a washing machine. But other than that, um, most of the things we're, we're throwing out after a couple of years and getting something brand new. Um, so uh, AI wears out too. Um, all of the robots are going to wear out. I mean, all of these uh, these new things that we're creating um, that we're going to hang our hat on uh, are going to wear out. But uh, uh, but what level of AI has to get automated? Uh, has to get upgraded. I mean, it's 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 like I saw I saw an ad last night for Windows 1.0, and it was it was just hilarious. Um, and then you think about we're at Windows 11 now, and then yeah. you think about all the other things that are are constantly being shoved off to the side because they're too old. And that's that's the way a lot of this is going to be. That uh, uh, and that'll take humans to make those calls as to what things are no longer useful. Yeah, well, that sounds right. I'm looking around my desk kind of sheepishly and. 
I've got an old tape measure that's yeah. uh, been here around for about 15 years, but that's about the oldest uh, device I have here. Yeah. You might have a red stapler too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you can tell the demographic we're targeting. We're going to have to update our jokes. <laughs> we, we can't keep throwing those out. I mean, I think it'll work for now, but at some point we're going to have to get more hip, hip Thomas. So, uh, Peter, I want to spend some time, uh, now, now that we've drug you down all these, uh, all, all, all these pathways to, to I want to spend some time talking about your actual work. So, uh, within philosophical circles, you've become kind of infamous for the view that we can reduce imagination to other familiar mental states, uh, like beliefs, desires, and judgments. And the prevailing view in philosophy and psychology is that imagination is kind of its own separate thing with these inscrutable processes that aren't well understood. So why don't we outline that, that controversy a little bit and then spend some time thinking about how it could apply to an artificial intelligence. Like why, why would an AI want an imagination and how might we instill it with one? Sure. Um, so, you know, starting kind of with the last part of that question, um, why imagination matters um, for modeling human minds. Well, you know, look, imagination, you can think of at least most generally as an ability to detach from the here and now to think about what could have been, but wasn't, or what could yet be, but isn't yet to think about, you know, mere possibilities. And this is a really central part of human thought and it's not shared terribly widely in the animal kingdom. I mean, you know, some animals may do this to degrees, but many, right, are very much in the present all, every, you know, at every moment. And of course, there's downsides to being able to think about the past and the future, but there's also major upsides for uh, the human species and being able to do that. And so when I'm thinking about imagination, most generally, I'm thinking about that, that and other philosophers as well, that ability to sort of consider mere possibilities, let's say. And so, you know, starting with that, we might want to say, well, how, how, are we, how could we build something with an imagination? Because if it doesn't have that, it's really not going to be terribly like a human mind. Right. It's got to have that, right? That's one of the things that's really distinctive and important about us. And um, one thing I've been uh, dissatisfied with in, in the way people have talked about imagination, both in philosophy and, and psychology, is that they sort of continue to introduce it as its own sort of irreducible aspect of mind. Um, so I put this at the beginning of my book in terms of um, the question of how you might write a recipe for something. Because if you want to understand what something is, um, a good way to explain what it is is sort of to give the recipe for it. How would you make this thing? What are its parts, right? And Fred Dresge, a, a philosopher, had a sort of famous line that, you know, um, if you want to have a recipe for a cake, uh, one of the ingredients better not be cake. Okay. <laughs> so I, and what I, my feeling about people's recipes for imagination in cognitive science is that one of the ingredients is always imagination. Right. Okay. And so that if that's one of the ingredients, we don't yet understand what it is. We can't write yet write a recipe for how to make something with an imagination until we can understand what, imagination is in terms of a recipe for it that doesn't involve imagination itself. So that's what I sort of aim to do. And my ingredients for imagination, you might say, well, what are the ingredients? Are they neural processes? Are they sort of, um, uh, you know, I don't know, cognitive states or something? Well, I start on a very sort of what, what people sometimes call folk psychology, just the ordinary kinds of psychological states we talk about in, when we talk, you know, ordinary discourse. 
So um, in particular, beliefs and desires are big ones or an intention. Okay. So these are all aspects of mind that, you know, people talk about philosophers, psychologists as being really central to what make people go, right? You got your beliefs, you, you believe this, you desire this, you intend to do this. If we know all these things, we can understand a lot about you and what you're about to do and so on. And when people have talked about imagination, they say, oh, wait, wait, we need to add this further thing. It's not just beliefs, desires, intentions that people have. Then there's this other thing, the imagination. Okay. And when people make that move, um, that's like, you know, including cake within your cake recipe to me. So I want to say, well, no, let's think about this. Can we explain what it is to imagine in terms of these other kinds of states, uh, beliefs, desires, and so on? Because the good thing about these other kinds of states we have the beginnings of an idea of how we might give something analogs of them to an artificial intelligence. Like we have at least the beginnings of the idea of an idea of how you might give, um, you know, your computer has something like beliefs in the sense that it has heart, what it has, the information it has stored on its hard drive. Like this is the information it has stored. This is what it takes to be the world. We can imagine giving something a camera that does something like seeing and then records what was seen and that can count as its beliefs about the world. We can give it sort of goals, things to do, right? A purpose. And then that can count as its desires. And even if you think that, okay, well, that's not how things are exactly for humans. We at least, you know, we're up and running. We have the beginnings of an idea right. of how to model those things. If we could then see how imagination too, to, to imagine thing is just to use those kinds of things like beliefs and desires in certain kinds of ways, then we would also be an up and running with the project of creating an AI with an imagination. Um, so maybe I can make that a little more concrete with, with an example of um, the case where we might say, okay, a, chi a child, a person has imagined something. How could this just be using their beliefs and desires? So think about a case of a child um, pretending to be a lion crawling around on the floor. Okay, the child goes roar and waves her hand in the in the in the air and sort of like a claw and goes on like this. Okay, we might, you know, look at the child and say, Oh, that's cute. She's pretending to be a lion and she's imagining that she's a lion. That's what enables her to to do this pretense. And in psychology and philosophy, there's a very close tie. People say, Oh, the ability to pretend. Uh, does uh, rely on the ability to imagine. So we look at the child, we say, okay, she's imagining she's a lion and that's enabling her to engage in this little pretense. After all, she doesn't really believe she's a lion. Right. Um, she is just imagining that she's one. Okay. Um, but if we back up from that and say, okay, what is what cognitively was required of her to engage in this, what we're calling imagining that I'm a lion? So the standard view is something like, well, she has a mental representation that says, I am a lion in her mind. That's at least one of the things, okay? And I have claws in her mind. And those things need to be kept very separate from her beliefs. Otherwise, she'll be counted as crazy. If you actually believe those things. <laughs> yeah. That's not good, you know. Okay, so it's very important, as they say, to keep those imaginings quarantined from your belief. And then we're off to the races having to give an account of this there's a special part of the mind where we keep the things we're only imagining. Whereas I would say, well, actually, the child knows how to play this game of pretending to be a lion. She needs to have the desire to make herself kind of like a lion, okay? And she needs to have some beliefs about typical traits of lions, like they roar, they walk on all fours, they have 
sharp claws. And then she, you know, she has those beliefs about what lions are like. She wants to make herself kind of like a lion. She doesn't believe she's a lion. And then she simply draws on those beliefs to make herself kind of like a lion. Okay. Um, that's what it was for her to imagine that she's a lion. There's not a further thing in her mind that she disbelieves that, you know, with like a statement in her mind, I am a lion. She doesn't think she's a lion, really. She doesn't need to think about all the things that would be true if she were a lion, such as that, well, my parents must be lions also, and uh, I must be a really weird-looking lion, right? She's not engaging in all that kind of thought, right? She's just up to something far more simple. So that's just a one sort of toy example of how, while it's very natural to describe someone as who's you know, pretending to be a lion as having the separate part of the imagination where she has all these representations she doesn't believe, you can alternatively alternatively describe it as, you know, she's just drawing on her information, her beliefs about what lions are like and trying to make herself like a lion as you know part of a game. Um, and then so I look at other contexts, like whether it's counterfactual reasoning about what could have happened but didn't, uh, whether it's engaging with fictions, where all, all kinds of contexts where people have wanted to say imagination is involved in this. And then I try to say, well, actually, if we look a bit more closely and we don't jump to conclusions, we can see this really as just a sophisticated kind of use of your beliefs of different kinds. And that's a good thing if we can see it that way, because we already have at least the beginnings of an idea of how to give something like beliefs um, to artificial intelligence. And, um, and then it means we already have at least the beginnings of an idea of how to model imagination in an artificial intelligence. So if we, if all of that is true and we, we know how to give an algorithm, the rudiments of belief or these other kinds of cognition, um, judgments and so forth. And mm -hmm. if those are the constituent parts of imagination, do you think that might give us a way of bridging the creativity gap that we open the show discussing? So we know that these algorithms can notice statistical regularities. They can kind of project forward from that. Might it be possible to build an imaginative faculty? out of these simpler parts and use that to engage in what, what was the term transformative creativity, transformative creativity. Yeah. I, I think that's sort of where I wanted to be taking things in the book um, is um, there's, is this idea, there's nothing wrong with, you know, one way to put it is there's nothing wrong with trying to understand creativity as a kind of reasoning. In fact, or I'm sorry, imagination is a kind of reasoning. Um, but because imagination, you know, we say that it's very free, we can imagine whatever we want and so on, and it's creative, there's been, there's a typical kind of intuitive resistance to viewing imagining as fundamentally a reasoning process. Um, but I try to break down that resistance. And I think that if we, once we do break it down, then, you know, it's true, some kinds of imagination don't fit the model of certain kinds of reasoning, right? So not all imagination is going to seem like if A, then B, A, therefore B, like that's not going to seem a lot like imagining. Right. But in some cases it will. And in other cases, um, as we get into those cases of creativity, if we think about what, um, you know, gen, uh, generative uh, adversarial networks are doing as a kind of reasoning about, well, hey, this would be a likely member of the things I've been trained on. As You know, and... Right. That's a kind of a reasoning process it's carrying out. If you think of that, is that if we might describe it in that way, 
Um, it's it's using its knowledge to generate that sort of new product. Um, but it's also something sort of creative about it, something sort of new, something um, you could, we can also step back and depending on the purposes it has for creating it and the context, we might also be correct to describe it as well. That That's what it is to imagine is to sort of use your best guess to generate a possible member of this set. And, you know, it's also a kind of reasoning and we don't need to see it as, as sort of completely distinct from our reasoning faculties, which is sort of the, the wall that I've been trying to, to break down. So as you're, as you're talking about this, the thing that's running through my head is, is this central question of how, how do we know when we're in danger? Um, because that seems like such a, an interesting question and where, where danger can come in lots of different forms and shapes and from different angles. Um, I mean, I think people would pay dearly to have a device that could tell them at any moment if they're in danger, but I'm not sure how you'd go about doing that. <laughs> you mean any kind of, like all kinds of danger, right? A oh, multi-purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to determine if the animal that's approaching you is a dangerous animal. It's another thing to get on a computer and know if um, uh, uh, an email that you're getting is a fraudulent email. And, and so, I mean, if you do this whole wide range of things, knowing when you're in danger is uh, a really complicated task. And yet that's, that's part of what we're tasked with as humans all the time. So you want like that RoboCop heads up display that just says threat detected or yeah, situation right. nominal yeah. little outlines it in a green square. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we have lots of little versions of that in our lives, but no general purpose uh, danger detector. Well, yeah. I think, I think you would need lots of different subsystems that are, that are stitched together. And arguably that's what's happening in the human mind as well. I mean, my suspicion is that there isn't a general danger detector. There's a bunch of little sub modules that say, well, this dog appears aggressive, you know, and then there are other sub modules that say this email is worded in such a way that it seems like it's spam. Like, so you're probably mm -hmm. going to have to mimic the way it's put together in the human brain somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah and do a little better my car sometimes yells at me break you know uh it, it thinks i was like it's about to run into I'm, like, I'm i'm fine i'm just taking a tight turn you know i'm good you know but thanks thanks for your concern you know um so i definitely want to discuss some of the work you've done on the connection between language and abstract thought uh, because this also has ramifications for ai and how we build them so um you were recently the lead author on a on an experimental psychology paper where your team used nonverbal pictorial stimuli to assess whether the language impairments in people affected by uh if, whether um let me start over on that hold on what is it Forty eight twelve. Okay, I'm just going to start from the top. Uh, I, I definitely want to spend some time discussing your work on the connection between language and ab abstract thought. So recently you were the lead author on an experimental psychology paper where your team used nonverbal pictorial stimuli to assess whether language impairments in people affected their capacity for abstract thought. So could you discuss how that experiment was set out and what the results were? Sure. Um, so, yeah, we are interested in this general question of um, whether language and also inner speech um, facilitates uh, what, what you rightly call abstract thought, where abstract thought is something like the ability to think about abstract kinds of things like um, justice, philosophy, love, uh, you know, being a living being or, you know, being rare, 
the notion of pre- making a prediction uh, where all these things are sort of things you wouldn't straightforwardly perceive in the world. So it's unlike, you know, dog, or even though there's something abstract about the notion of a dog and that it, many different things count as dog and you have to sort of understand the connection, right? There's also a further notion of abstractness where we think about these things that we really important that we're able to think about them, but they're not straightforwardly perceivable. And you might think, well, if language ever played a role anywhere, would it be in allowing us to have these kinds of abstract thoughts and think these abstract things? For instance, you know, could you think that um, something like, you know, the Democrats really need to increase their support with union leaders in the Northeast United States, or they'll never win the next election? Could you have that kind of thought if you didn't have words, right? Right? You just sit and have the thought, or not, right? Um, and so, I think, how could you approach? And people, you know, approach this kind of question in lots of different ways. And and uh, the way we tried to do it um, was to present pictorial stimuli. So we didn't want to assume, right, or uh, an ability for language in in the stimuli. And that's one of the difficulties in studying this, because obviously, um, you know, if you have language problems, you're, any kind of stimulus that involves words could be difficult for you to handle, even if you didn't have a process with abstract thought itself, right? right? So we want to leave open the possibility that someone is very linguistically impaired, but in fact, has absolutely perfect abstract thought. They just can't find the words to put it into, right? And so we were dealing with people with aphasia and particularly a productive aphasia, and they've acquired this uh, through a stroke typically where, so, and there are different forms of aphasia, but the sort of people we used uh, had excellent comprehension uh, still, but just very um, impaired ability to produce language. Um, So you might think of them as like having a really terrible tip of the tongue syndrome. and so you might think, okay, well, these people can't generate words for things out loud or even in their head very well. Um, but does that impair their ability to sort of understand abstract relationships between things? And so we tried to investigate this by giving them a task where they would show one picture at the top. Um, so one example is uh, we show a picture of, say, um, a fortune teller with a crystal ball. And then there'd be four images below it, and they would need to pick which one goes with the image of the woman and the, the crystal ball. And in this example, the four cases were a fireman, uh, a weather forecaster, a doctor, and I think it was a policeman or something like that. And uh, so the correct answer in this case uh, is a weather forecaster um, uh, with the, the idea what links the two? Well, it's not that they looked particularly similar, right? The weather forecaster didn't look any more like the woman with the crystal ball than, than did the, fire, the policeman or fireman and so on. It's not as though people with crystal balls are commonly found together with um, uh, you know, weather forecasters, right? There's this more abstract connection. It's like, okay, well, they're both involved in this thing of predicting, making forecasting. And if you, to show that you understand the link between those two shows that you, have, you understand something sort of abstract. And, and our, our hypothesis was that, well, uh, if language is involved anywhere, then the more abstract in that kind of sense, the, the, the trial, um, the more difficulties you'll have. And so a less abstract might trial would be something, well, that just matches a dog with another kind of dog, say, mm-hmm. or a bar of soap with a rubber ducky. The two things are found together all the time. Um, another abstract trial was um, uh, a plant as the main image. And then the four choices were sort of a metal dog, uh, 
like the metal dog from Monopoly, a living dog, uh, a wooden dog, and you know, a picture of a dog. And then the idea is like, okay, well, what what brings the plant and the dog together is that they're living beings. And this is another abstract uh, concept. And so we did find that the people with, you now the people with aphasia were worse overall by a bit, just, and, and that's not um, to be, that's not surprising, um, just they have had a stroke and they had mild cognitive impairments uh, as a result. But um, the interesting result was that um, the people with aphasia, as the more abstract the trials got, the more pronounced their difficulties were compared to the controls. Um, so the longer they took, um, and so the best sort of, uh, they did worse. And then also they took much longer, the more abstract they got. And so that suggests that they were particularly heavy hit with difficulty when, um, these were more abstract. So that's sort of suggestive, at least of a role for language. Um, I find this interesting, you know, in the context of AI, because you might think of, yeah, can, can AI get abstract thought? And of course, that's sort of a vague question. I mean, what do we mean by that? What would it be? That for it to have abstract thought. Well, one way to make that precise is, well, could it be trained to solve this kind of task, um, right? Where it, it's not latching on to perceptual regularities in the world on these abstract things. So for instance, the plant and the living dog aren't somehow found together more frequently than the plant and say, you know, a toy dog or, you know, the, the again, the the woman with the crystal ball isn't sort of found together more frequently with the weather forecaster than with something else, or they don't look more similar, right? So it's sort of abstracting away from, you have to understand how things can go together that where they're not sort of uh, associated together in your perceptual experience of the world in any regular way. Um, so that, that would be one way of saying, okay, what, how would we go about training an AI to solve those kinds of puzzles. Like I think we could, tr in, in puzzles where it's like, well, match the dog with the dog, I think the AI would do great with that, right? right? We know they can just detect dogs. But as but we can generate trials where what the two things have in common, another was a $2 bill was the target. And then one of the choices was a white tiger as opposed to like a robin and a cat and you know a lion. And so the idea is like, okay, the $2 bill, for Americans will know it's quite rare <coughs> as is the white oh, tiger. See, yeah. So, okay. So then these two go together as things that are rare. Uh, okay. So that's another way of grasping an abstract relationship between two things. Um, again, so our result was that language, the people uh, with the language impairments with aphasia had a, uh, pronounced difficulties on, on those ones, the more abstract they got, even though, you know, it's, I don't want to, it's important also to realize that it's not that they couldn't do it. So it's a complex relationship. It's not suggesting that, well, if you have aphasia, you just can't possibly, you know, you can't produce the words, then you just can't possibly grasp this relationship. No, sometimes they could. Uh, so it's more suggestive of a situation where language plays an important supporting role. You, we lean on it to sort of help us guess or get at different kinds of abstract relationships even if we might be able to understand it and grasp it without coming up with the word. Um, so it's, it's a complex issue. I don't want, wouldn't want to give the impression that somehow it's very clear what the relationship between language and abstract thought is, but we're trying to, you know, gradually get towards a clearer understanding. And so far there's some evidence of 
you know, a kind of supporting role, a scaffolding role, um, particular for these, for these abstract kinds of categorizations. So in, in futurist circles, we've, we've had a lot of discussions about whether people in 2050 will still have a need to read and write. Um, and um, as, as I watch my, my grandkids today, most of their learning takes place on YouTube. And the, the need to actually sit down and read a book is, is lessened because uh, people can uh, pick up a video and watch it. Um, and so it, it brings up some really interesting uh, questions and some interesting debates along the way. Um, but uh, that ties in closely with some of the research you were doing there um, yeah. about the, yeah. the immortal nature of, of reading and writing that we think is uh, paramount to success in the world. Is mm -hmm. it going to always be that way? Well, cr crucially in your example, language is still involved. So they're still getting linguistic input and linguistic output. So even if it's not a written word, they are still right. speaking, right? And they can speak to themselves internally and you can use that as a tool. So if I were looking at the white tiger, $2 bill example, even if I could not read a word, but I, I still could speak, I might just tell myself a little story, just look at it and say, what are the properties of this? Well, $2 bills are kind of rare. So let's just pin that. What are the properties of the other set, the, the members of the set that I'm looking at? Well, the white tiger is the rarest one, right? You can still use language as a scaffolding, even if you're illiterate. I mean, and people did mm -hmm. for thousands of years before the invention of the written word. Yeah, it brings up a lot of questions about okay, what do what do websites look like? What does music sound like? What it, you know, all of these things. How do you how do you solve math problems if you can't write things down? Um, there, there's there's lots of pieces to this that um, we end up debating, and I, I'm not sure that anybody has clear uh, answers to any of it just yet. <laughs> no, yeah. that, is, that is really interesting. Um, yeah, and in, in the the science fiction novel Anathem, there are these monks that they're literate, you know, they read and they write, they have these huge libraries, but they're able to do math proofs with music. They, they can, they, they arrange themselves in, in uh, choral groups and they're able to manipulate the tones in such a way that it actually produces a proof. And uh, in, in writing this, the, the, author Neil Stevenson worked with another guy whose name is escaping me, but he actually developed some of the music that you would use for that. He's like, here's how you would, uh, here's how you would derive this formula from simpler antecedent formulas through the vehicle of music. So that's more just a comment. Okay. That's just an interesting yeah. connection that struck me as Thomas was, was saying that. <laughs> yeah, no, interesting thought. And you know, right. On the one hand, as long as you've got some language, it can still play a role in how you're thinking, but you know, it, it will be interesting to think about, Okay, but what about being a proficient writer as opposed to a proficient speaker? Are there differences in the way you think if you're only good at one versus the other? Um, oh, definitely. Because yeah. I do have, I do have students coming up and they say in class, like, but is there a video I could watch on this? I find I'm really good at learning in that way, and I just sort of give them this look, like, <laughs> no, you've got to actually read the Hume, you know, like I don't know what to tell you, yeah, but. Um, Maybe that is a thing, you know, I, I, of course, you know, yeah, view it with skepticism just because it's different than when, you know, when I was a boy, but, you know, could you really be learning everything by video that you learn by engaging through engaging with the text yeah. reading? 
I, I would well, be very I skeptical with philosophy. I, I think it sort of yeah. depends on, on what it is you're trying to do. So I find that yeah. I'm a reasonably yeah. good writer and a reasonably good speaker, but the complexity of the thoughts I can get out in writing are, are just orders of magnitude larger than what I can get out in speaking. Cause I just can't hold it in my working memory that way. And I think the yeah. advantage of writing it down is just that it's essentially an external memory. I can just externalize these thoughts and build them up over time and come to a conclusion. That's just not thinkable. Like you're never going to get Kant, the Kantian metaphysics without the yeah. written word. There's just no way. There's no way to hold that in your mind and then express it in speech. Like what, you're just going to recite this, the critique of pure reason every time somebody has a question about it. No, there's, there's gotta be a way mm -hmm. to, to, to get it all down so that you can load individual parts into your working memory at a time, grapple with those, consolidate them, move on to the next thing. Yeah. You're saying it can't be boiled down to a TikTok uh, video. I, I don't know. <laughs> Not Kant one anyone on wants TikTok, to watch. <laughs> Kant has a really lousy TikTok account. Yeah. Like <laughs> rambling on and no, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. It's a 90 minute TikTok. It's the format yeah. doesn't support it. Well, we are yeah. we are coming up to the hour. Unfortunately, this is one of those ones that I feel like we could have just gone on for two or three hours. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, boy, I didn't have anything uh, prepared as a closing thought. Um, it's fun fun to think about. You know, when I, I you know, I, I'm you know, I'm curious. It's Futurati, right? This is the the, right. the Futurati podcast, and thinking about the future. Um. The only thing I would leave with is, you know, how far do you guys think into the future? Uh, because, <laughs> you know, uh, we spent so much time sort of, you know, talking, thinking five, 10 years into the future. You know, how, how, how far is too far to even make it worthwhile to think about the future? From a Well, most, most clients ask for something in the five to 10 year event horizon. Yeah. But but every once in a while we get somebody that wants to push it farther out. Um, yeah. As an example, somebody celebrating their 50th anniversary will want to know what the 50 years from now is going to look like um, for a company. That's that sort of thing. And yeah, but that's pretty rare. Um, but uh, but there sometimes it's naturally tied into it because you you have to start today to make the things that are going to happen 50 years from now. So you shouldn't overlook the possibilities of, of, of setting your viewfinder in a, a far ranging mode. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would like to think about 10,000 years from now, but I feel like that might be a, I, I just, I think it's not so much thinking about it, like thinking about whether I can think about it. Right. Exactly. Like, like what are you me. doing and thinking about that? Well, effectively you're just yeah. kind of telling a story about what it might be like. There's no real way to derive from today, these conditions, what 10,000 years will look like. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to settle myself into like, do I have a something, a sort of nothing new under the sun sort of view about humanity where like, okay, you know, they'll have some fancy things, but humanity, I will recognize it and I will, I would feel at home in that in that yeah, world or, or is that well, wrong? I'm not even sure yeah. that would be true for 300 years ago. I mean, if, if you just plot me back 300 years, I suspect rather a lot of it would shock me. Yeah. yeah. My wife and I took a, a tour of um, the city of Segovia, Spain. And in Segovia, they have um, the aqueducts that were built by the Romans 2000 years ago. And they're still intact. They're still a centerpiece of the city. Um, they don't work as aqueducts right now, but but it started me down the path of asking, okay, um, 
what structures, what other structures do we have that are over 2000 years old? Mm-hmm. And then what are, what are we building today? That's going to be around 2000 years from now. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, will the statue of Liberty still be around the uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, the, the big unity statue in India, will these still be around 2000 years from now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it raises lots of interesting questions. And why are we building houses that are uh, kind of designed to fall apart in 30 years rather than uh, <laughs> 2000? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so we're wasting a lot of resources building temporary things when we should be thinking a lot much longer term. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm glad I got to air that puzzle at least. Yeah. Thank you for hearing <laughs> it. Um, well, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you all the best. Your work is really interesting. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. You guys take yeah. care. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Peter Langland Hassan. Don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.